I'm pleased now to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Paul Wenberg. Mr. Wenberg is the R. Stanton Avery Professor of Atmospheric Chemistry and Environmental Science and Engineering at the California Institute of Technology. He directs the Ronald and Maxine Lind Center for Global Environmental Science. His research is focused on understanding the composition of the atmosphere and how it is changing. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Paul Wenberg. So uh, thank you, Gregory, and, and thanks to Sokolov for uh, putting on this uh, event tonight. Uh, I had the pleasure of talking with Tapio Schneider, who's a professor of environmental science and engineering at Caltech, Usha McFarling, who is an uh, award-winning journalist who has written about the environment, about the ocean for the Los Angeles Times, and now is associate director of the new Resnick uh, Sustainability Institute at uh, Caltech, and then Alex Hall. Uh, from UCLA. Alex has uh, worked extensively on regional uh, impacts of climate change with a focus on atmospheric uh, hydrology and water resources. And so tonight, of course, the focus of the discussion is on what uh, the trajectory for climate is in California and uh, how the climate may impact the local environment. So I thought I would start by just discussing the climate change issue in the context of the changes in pollution in Los Angeles, because in some ways these are related, in other ways they are really, really quite different. So uh, 1950s LA, pretty horrible place to be breathing. Pollution levels were, were just horrendous. Downtown Los Angeles had very high aerosol pollution. There were protests in Pasadena, of all places, over air quality. Caltech students would arrive in September. They would not know that the San Gabriel Mountains were there until the winter storms would come through and blow out the pollution. So uh, it was a really terrible place. There was a professor at Caltech, Ari Hagenschmidt, who was a chemist. And he worked on natural products and had a greenhouse where he was growing some of the plants. And all of his plants were dying. So he set out to figure out what is going on in the air and what is killing his plants. And uh, he worked out the chemistry. He worked out the chemistry of smog. And what he showed unambiguously was that smog came from car emissions. The car emissions plus the natural chemistry of the atmosphere produced just this terrible pall over the basin. So the first thing then was that now we knew what the science was. Ari Hagenschmidt went much further. He actually founded the California Air Resources Board, became its first director. So he moved from being a scientist directly into the policy realm. And then he was able to promote policies that allowed innovation, essentially. We're going to clean up the cars. You guys figure out how to do this. The car companies figured out how to do this. And we're all the beneficiaries of it. I mean, air quality in Los Angeles has improved measurably. During the last 30 years, uh, most air quality measures are down by a factor of three. In other words, much better air quality, despite the 30% increase in the population of the basin. One might look at this very optimistically and see what, what is it that led to the success uh, to the extent that we have it. Clearly, the air quality is not perfect in any means. But it's really you had, you had excellent science that was tied the problem of air quality to a particular emission targets, cars. You had very active government, one which promoted then the, the changes in the engineering problems that could be done to solve this uh, air quality abatement. And the best thing, of course, the most immediate thing was that local actors could be acted on by local politicians and local government to produce local changes. In other words, we had the state of California working to change the emissions within California that then led to improvements in air quality in California. So it's pretty linear. Climate is a much, much different beast. So the same things are there. I think as we'll hear tonight, science is becoming secure and ever more so. We understand what the emissions are. So we're at step one. We have a very, very good idea of what's, uh, what's happening, what's going to happen, and what the causes are. Um, the problem is that CO2 molecule emitted in China will have the same impact on the climate of California that a CO2 molecule emitted in California will have. 
so this public dimension, this aspect of how do we promote the necessary changes in our energy economy have to occur at the global level. Now, California can be a leader, of course, but nevertheless, the, the only way you can reduce the total amount of CO2 being emitted into the atmosphere is by going after the large emissions, which are not just the United States, of course. We're about 25%, but the, uh, China is last year exceeded the emissions of greenhouse gases from the United States. So the trajectory is definitely towards much more global emissions. So with, with that idea then in context, what I thought we'd do is start by just asking Tapio to describe uh, a little bit about how greenhouse gases work, uh, where the climate is, is changing, and how is it changing, and what it's like to do in the future. Yeah. So Paul mentioned carbon dioxide. It is, that is the greenhouse gas we care most about when we talk about climate change here, and that's the greenhouse gas, why we are here, essentially. It's just one greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. There are others. Water vapor is the most important uh, greenhouse gas, and it warms the Earth's surface. Without water vapor in the atmosphere, it would be a lot colder. The Earth would be frozen over. So there's a natural greenhouse effect due to water vapor, due to carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere naturally. And to this natural greenhouse effect, we add carbon dioxide primarily, but also other gases, nitrous oxides, CFCs. And carbon dioxide is the most important of those. So what all these greenhouse gases do is they absorb heat radiation at the Earth's surface gives off infrared radiation. It's the, the radiation you feel when you put your hand over something warm, the stove. Carbon dioxide, water vapor, other greenhouse gases absorb this radiation and radiate part of it back towards the surface. So they act a bit like a blanket for this infrared radiation. And as a result, they keep the surface warmer than it would be otherwise. So part of that is natural due to water vapor, for example. But as we emit more carbon dioxide, and that's, that's the one pollutant that we haven't reduced at all. It is produced with any burning of any fossil fuel, anything that contains carbon. We have made great progress in cleaning up the air, but carbon dioxide, you don't smell, you don't see. We still emit it more than ever. So that is accumulating in the atmosphere, and it's accumulating quite rapidly. We know exactly how much is in the atmosphere. We know how much there has been in the atmosphere a long time into the past, almost a million years. We know it very accurately from Looking into ice cores, for example, you can drill into the ice of Antarctica, and the, the air of thousands of years ago is preserved in the ice and air bubbles, and you can measure how much carbon dioxide was in the air thousands of years ago, very accurately. So we know that now there's more carbon dioxide in, in the air than there has been ever been in the last about a million years at least, and probably much longer. Carbon dioxide is a trace constituent of the atmosphere. We measure it in parts per million, so one in molecules per million molecules of air. It is very little, and you might think, if it's so little, why do we care? This very little makes a big difference, because most of the atmosphere, 99% of the atmosphere, is essentially transparent to this infrared, this heat radiation. So you're just talking about small effects that make all the difference from the Earth being frozen over to now. There's also very little water vapor in the atmosphere. If you just take all the water that's in the atmosphere and condenses, you get about an inch of water at the surface. It's very little, and still that makes all the difference between having a completely frozen Earth and inhabitable planet. So we add to this natural greenhouse effect by increasing the concentration of carbon dioxide, other greenhouse gases, and the one thing that has to happen, that's basic physics, is it's getting warmer. And it has gotten warmer in the last century by about a degree Fahrenheit or so. The land areas have warmed faster than oceans, which is what you expect. There's less thermal inertia over land areas than the oceans have. It just takes longer to heat water. The top few tens of meters of ocean water. And that's, that's observable. And uh, I, I wish we could actually show pictures here. I could show it to you. You can see it very clearly the last 100 years, how it has gotten warmer. I'll put an animation on the web page where this is recorded, and when you go home, you can look at it for yourself and see how the Earth has warmed in the last 100 years or so. And clearly, it will get warmer. In the global mean, temperatures will increase in the next 50 years, 40, 50 years, by about 2 or 3 degrees Fahrenheit. This number we know pretty accurately. And there's a lot of inertia in the climate system. The response times are long. So of these 2 to 3 degrees Fahrenheit warming that we'll see in the next 40, 50 years, about a third of that we'll get even if carbon dioxide concentrations would be frozen at what they are now, which is technologically not feasible. We can't arrest the increase today. 
but it is good to keep in mind that even if we could, the Earth will warm further, and it will continue to warm for a long time, just because it takes a long time for the ocean, the ice sheets, to respond to this perturbation um, in the atmospheric energy budget that we, that we are performing. So warming is the, the most obvious effect, and it is clear that it will get warmer. The next 50 years, we know it quite accurately. The next 100 years, how much warmer it will get will depend on a number of factors, how much we are emitting. That's part, part of that is our choice. And then there are uncertainties in, in climate modeling and the physics. We don't understand very well what clouds will do. So in the next 100 years, the temperatures will probably increase anywhere between 3 and 7 degrees Fahrenheit. And this uncertainty, in part, is uncertainty what we are going to do, how much we are going to emit. Uh, and in part, uncertainty in our understanding of the climate system. And then, of course, why we are here is we care about regional effects, and I think Alex will talk more about those. Um, precipitation will change. Extreme precipitation will become more frequent. At the same time, droughts can become more frequent, which might seem paradoxical, but you can just get more dry, dry spells, longer dry spells, at the same time as you will get more extreme uh, rainfall. And some of the basic physics of that, we also understand that it's fairly secure. As the Earth warms, sea level will rise. Some of you from west of here, Santa Monica, might care about that more than people in Pasadena. The, the sea level will rise in part just because of thermal expansion of the oceans. So you'll get about one to two feet of sea level rise in the next 100 years simply from thermal expansion of waters. In addition to that, at some point, ice sheets, glaciers will melt that will contribute to sea level rise. How much and over what time scale, we don't know very well, but eventually, it will happen. So, Tapio, does maybe you could, will, will the warming be, is it uniform, say, winter to summer or night to day? So it's not uniform. Again, land areas in general warm faster than ocean areas. Um, the the night-day contrast, so we're, we're talking about greenhouse gases here, and as I said, they act on the infrared radiation, the heat radiation that is also emitted at night. So they'll make nights warmer as well. And in fact, that is what accounts for the hot summer nights on the East Coast. You have a lot of water vapor in the air. So nights will get warmer, um, and the, the, uh, the temperature contrast between night and day will shrink as a result of that. So Alex, how does this then play out here in California? What's the, what is the regional, what regional differences are there? Well, there are a number of regional impacts that we could talk about. There's the impact of the overall warming climate on um, extreme heat events um, and heat waves. There is the impact of, of the warming climate on energy consumption, um, water consumption. There are a number of areas that, that um, we could talk about and, and it would be fun to talk about. Um, I wanted to focus on one area in particular, which is water resources, because I think it's, an, it's a good example of, of the complexity of the problem and, and an area where the, the rubber kind of hits the road. So as, you know, as, we're, as the science is advancing, we get into talking a little bit more about the regional impacts of climate change and focusing on the aspects that are really relevant for humans and for ecosystems. Um, and um, the, the issue of, of water resources is interesting because in, we have a very complex um, infrastructure in California to get water to um, the Los Angeles region. There are two main sources for water. There's the Colorado River and there's the um, the um, Sierra snowpack, and there's a system of aqueducts that, um, that transports water from those two sources to us, and it's a huge amount of water, and it's a giant engineering system. This, it turns out this system um, is quite vulnerable to a warming climate, and the reason for that is that there's a kind of a cooperation between um, a natural reservoir, for example, in the Sierras, in the form of, of the Sierra snowpack, and, the, and a human-created reservoir in the form of dams, which are located along the spine of the Sierras. So in the wintertime, there's a lot of precipitation in California. That's when our water comes. It gets stored in this natural reservoir, which is the Sierra snowpack. And water trickles down and fills up the reservoirs um, throughout the winter also. Then that water is drained out at the beginning of the spring and used to irrigate crops and used to supply water in, in, in Southern California for us. And, um, and then the Sierra snowpack melts, and it refills these rev reservoirs. And, um, and then we have a steady supply of water throughout the summer, throughout this very dry period in California. So um, by, through the staging of water, through these natural and, and human-created reservoirs, we have a steady supply of water. Well, if you have a warming climate, and as Tapio mentioned, we're fairly 
certain the climate is warming and will warm more, um, then you have, a, you have um, suddenly a serious problem because you know that this um, snowpack um, is only sitting there because temperatures are, are mostly below zero during the wintertime. And in fact, if we look at um, the implications of global climate change simulations for um, the Sierras, um, we see that by the end of the century, a very middle-of-the-road scenario, assuming that we you know, don't do too much to our emissions, um, we, we proceed in kind of business as usual, and we take a model that is just responsive in a very average way to an increase in greenhouse gases, we find that the Sierra snowpack is mostly gone. So suddenly, we're without this natural um, reservoir. Um, you know, it's, it's not suddenly, but relatively quickly. And that poses a, a, a very large challenge for, um, for our, this whole system that has been engineered to deliver water um, in a smooth and, and um, consistent way throughout the year. Um, and so then suddenly, um, all these questions are opened up about how do we adapt to that and what kind of water resource infrastructure do we need to, um, to, to respond to that. And that um, brings up, and then of course there's all this question, there's this question of how, how, um, how, how certain are we of this change and what are the error bars, if you will, on the possible change in the Sierra snowpack going forward. Um, and it turns out that these error bars are, are quite large. So in the face of this large uncertainty, then what is our response? And, um, and, I, and, and these are, are questions that are very difficult to, to sort through. Um, and I think the, what I, the point that I wanted to bring home with this example is that the climate system is, is very complex, and even at the global scale, there are many complexities, top you mentioned clouds, that can make it difficult to tease out what the global response is going to be. Um, then we get down to regional scales, and there are other uncertainties associated with those, and then there's the human dimension, and we know how complicated we are. Each one of us is terribly complicated and um, our interactions are, are also very, very challenging to untangle at times. So um, it, it really is a, um, a very challenging and, and difficult issue. And I think water resources is an example of, of this area where there's this intersection between the complexity of the science and um, complexity of human institutions. Um, so um, I, I thought that might be a, a nice segue for you, Usha, to talk about the um, communication to the public and other issues. Um, so I've written about climate change since 1992, and it's dismaying to me to, to see, to realize that the message is just not getting out. Um, Pew just did a survey last week, it was released, and only 35% of Americans believe climate change is a significant problem. And that's low, but what's even more disturbing is that 18 months ago when they did this same poll, 44% of people thought it was a problem. So even as scientists are getting more concerned and people feel it's a growing crisis, sort of uh, the American public is getting less concerned or understanding it less. Um, there's a number of reasons for this. Um, the first is that this is a very complicated story. There's feedback loops on top of feedback loops. There's um, uh, from cows, uh, volcanic eruptions, burping cows, I mean, all kinds of things put out gases into the air or affect um, th the amount of sunlight hitting the earth in ways that are, are really difficult to, to tease out and put together. Um, a lot of this science is non-intuitive. You've probably heard of plans, you, maybe you've paid to offset your carbon from your airplane and they've said, we're going to plant two trees in Norway. Well. It turns out that if you take a snowy field in Norway and turn it into a pine forest, it's a lot darker than the snow, and that, those, that pine forest is going to absorb sunlight, and that's going to heat the earth. So, you know, for everything we, we, every way we try to help, um, you know, things hurt, and th these are hard messages to get across. Um, you've probably all heard about the melting glaciers and seen these dramatic pictures from the Sierras, from, from what formerly known as Glacier National Park. Um, but there's also glaciers that are growing because precipitation patterns change. At Mount Shasta, the glaciers are actually growing because as the climate warms and atmospheric patterns change, precipitation patterns change, and some areas are getting more rain. So to try to convey this to a public um, is difficult, and when we also see from polls that 20% you know, of Americans think that the sun revolves around the Earth. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a problem to, if you, know, if you can't even get that right to understand what, what these guys are... What are your things about? 
right, right. Not you guys, <laughs> not, not you, of course. Um, I, the good news in Los Angeles is I think we have a very sophisticated audience to understand these things. We understand risk and uncertainty. We understand thinking out over long time scales of decades or centuries. Um, and that's because we've grown up with earthquakes. And you know the, the physics of earthquakes are probably one of the few things that's as, as complex as, as the climate system. So you know, so I, I, I think we're um, this is a, a good place to understand climate. I, I think we should. Um, there's another important reason that we should and will understand the change in climate. We live on the edge of habitability here. You know, we've got too many people crammed into a region that really doesn't have enough water to support itself. Um, and we are going to be among the first to notice these changes as the planet changes. You know, more days over 100 degrees in August. So we'll notice that, right? Um, increased water restrictions, lowered reservoirs. We'll notice that. More, more wildfires. I, I think it, all of us who saw the station fire, we know we're going to notice that. So we're on the front lines, I think, of this rapidly changing climate here. And whether we like it or not, we've got front row seats. Um, the second reason this is hard to convey is psychological. When you hear about globally what could happen, famine in Africa and drought and increased disease rates, um, you know, it's horrifying and it's, it's hard to take in. And uh, I think a very popular response is denial or hopelessness. Um, I've interviewed more than one climate scientist who has sort of told me all about climate and I've closed my notebook and then they said, you know, actually, it's worse than I just said. I, I'm, just, I'm just scared to say it because I don't want people to you know, throw up their hands and give up. And so th that's disturbing, right, if the experts can't even think about how to describe the problems because they're so big. Um, again, I think in Los Angeles, um, you know, we, we deal with this denial. You know, we, we've got housing tracks across the San Andreas Fault. And at the same time, you know, I, we are seeing more and more people put together earthquake kits and think about making emergency plans. So, you know, behavior can change. So I think just as we've gotten some grip on pollution and gotten some grip on how to live with earthquake danger, you know, I, th I think we're, in this region, going to be ahead of others in terms of dealing with climate. Um, the third reason is political. Um, you know, it's clear, and much investigative reporting has confirmed this, that special interests, particularly the oil and coal industry, have spent tens of millions of dollars to put up um, false fronts and, and pay scientists to equivocate and obfuscate the climate issue. You've heard of them. The, um, I've got a list here. The, the Heritage Foundation, the American Enterprise Institute. They're really fronts for, for ExxonMobil. My favorite, the Cooler Heads Coalition. Um, they've, so they do have good marketing. They, they've grown increasingly sophisticated in their campaign. I, you know, 10 years ago it was, you know, climate change is not happening. And then it was, okay, maybe the earth is warming, but it's not humans. It's, it's natural. It's the sun is getting stronger. And then it, then it became, well, maybe humans are causing some of this climate change, but, you know, it's not that bad. It's, you know, people like wine growers in Canada, you know, people are going to benefit from this. You know, it's a trade-off. And then now, I don't, if you follow the climate blogs, you've seen that, you know, 1998 was the hottest year on record, and we've got hotter years, but the, the, the extreme warming that we saw in the 90s has kind of leveled off, which scientists believe is part of the natural variability of the, of the Earth's climate. But now it's, you know, they're really back to, you know, it's not happening. You know, the Earth is, it's not warming anymore, so it's cooled down. So um, I think that... Um, you know, I think we have to worry about the climate story being hijacked. And it's not only from the right, it's from the left as well. I think you've all seen the photos of the polar bears kind of stranded on the ice, and the, you know, their ice is melting and they're all going extinct. And, um, you know, the, the scientists who advise the Canadian government on endangered species, you know, they've got, the mo they've got 60 percent of the world's polar bears up there. And, you know, it's, it's clear they're not in... in it's, it's a, of course, a concern if ice is vanishing and the where the polar bears live and get their food, but they're not in danger of extinction. They're more in danger, actually, from pollution and the mercury and the fish they eat and the hunting from, you know, the Inuits are still allowed to hunt polar bears. So um, I realize every movement needs a mascot, but it's, it's a sort of a disservice to, you know, put up a, overblow a story. And then it, it washes back in the climate down and say, oh, polar bears are fine, there's nothing to worry about, there's no global warming. So this is just to say from both sides, it's, it's very murky. Um, so these are the challenges um, we face as we move ahead and, and have to make decisions about our city and our, our region, you know, and our planet. Um, 
And I, I was going to raise one last thing maybe for Alex. I, I think for so many outsiders, our, our city's narrative is one of apocalypse. And Susan Orlean of The New Yorker, she was apparently living in Los Angeles during the fires. And she's the latest to be you know, berated for sort of being oversimplistic and saying, you know, Los Angeles, you know, veers between heaven and hell, you know, teeters between, you know, paradise and apocalypse. And, um, you know, and a more nuanced view um, that was, you know, people have, you know, more local people have talked about that these, the paradise and apocalypse are intertwined here. They're sort of inseparable. And it's true, like, we, we love, you know, it's perfect weather most of the year. And, um, millions of people are streaming in. We're going to go from 10 million to 13 million in the next few decades. And so we have a huge fire, and then people come back and rebuild. And we have an earthquake, and people come back and rebuild. And we have a lands, you know, landslides, and people come back and rebuild. And so I'm just wondering with climate, you know, we've, we've had this place that's this endless days of, of perfection, of, of warmth and dryness, but could it get too hot, you know, or too dry? Is climate going to be the thing that, that you know, ends the stream of people into the Golden State. Well, I don't, I, I'm not a demographer, so I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I can speak to that issue. But um, certainly, if you look at the projections of changes in, 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 in heat waves and in number of days of a very extreme weather being above 90 or 95 degrees Fahrenheit, you find that um, there are projected to be, um, I don't know the figures at my fingertips, but something like um, 20 to 50 percent increases in numbers of days where, it's, where the weather is very extreme. So, and those days are pretty, pretty tough to deal with, I think, for a lot of people. So I do think that it's, it's not going to be quite the, um, the... I don't think it's... You know, right now, there's a, there's a lot of natural air conditioning in Los Angeles. It's generally um, a very... You know, it's about 70 degrees outside during the day, and, and I think it will be warmer in the future. Um, but I'm not sure it will be so much warmer that it won't be an attractive climate for people to come, come and live in. So... So what about, uh, what about the Sierra snowpack? I mean, it's, Tapio mentioned it's, uh, we've had about a degree Fahrenheit warming. Um, have we seen changes in the snowpack uh, over the last century? Do we know anything now? Yes. We, well, as Tapio mentioned, we've seen a warming of the, of the, of the planet. And there's been, that warming has also ex expressed itself in California and in the Sierras. And we've seen um, a number of consistent signals in the Sierras. There's earlier. Um, earlier bloom of, of, of trees. Um, there is a, um, and there's also earlier melt. We have um, stream flow occurring, occurring earlier in the season. And we also, if you look at snow measurements, we have the snow melt occurring earlier. And we actually have good enough measurements of, of, of snow and a dense enough network of snow measurements that we can say that unequivocally. So there's definitely been a trend um, already towards earlier melting. Um, so these things are happening already, and, um, and I think what's happening in the Sierras is, is really quite significant. And of course, in the rest of the U.S., rest, rest of the Western U.S., there is also um, a reliance on, on, on snow cover and then subsequent melting um, in the springtime to fill up these reservoirs. That, that, so the Western U.S. is a very managed water resource infrastructure. Um, but you know, the other wild card is another one that Tapio mentioned, which is the change in precipitation. Um, and you know, we know that precipitation is going to go up globally. Uh, we don't know where that increase in precipitation is going to be distributed. And it turns out that um, this region, California, um, happens to lie um, in a very ambiguous zone. If you look at the projections of global climate models, some of them say it's, we're going to get more precipitation, and some of them say we're going to get less. Um, and then you, there, another confounding factor is that all of these water compacts that were signed were signed in the early part of the 20th century, which was a time of plentif unusually plentiful water resources, if we go back and look at paleoclimate records. So we have this situation where the snowpack is melting. We've allocated water based probably on an unrealistic assessment of what the natural resource is without climate change. Climate is changing. It's going to change precipitation. We don't know really which way. Um, it's, it's really um, a, a, a recipe potentially for um, genuine, I think, genuine disaster. And I think water, so I think the issue of water is really, really a crucial one. You know, I think that the, the th I think one of the reasons why scientists are so concerned about the issue of climate change is because once you dig into it, there are so many potential effects. And, and you kind of get the sense that we're opening a Pandora's box 
you know, we've only begun to scratch the surface of what all these implications could be, and we don't fully understand them. And so I think when, when scientists start to think about this more deeply, I think that's really ultimately what makes them very concerned and gives them a lot of pause. At least that's, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I think that's ultimately kind of what makes me think, wow, we really need to get a handle on this. We really don't know what we're doing. <laughs> and we probably won't know in time to do anything about it also. That is the pessimistic thing is that, you know, the, as Tapio mentioned, there's this, that big inertia in the climate system where you, you're doing the experiment. We're really doing this experiment now where we're driving the greenhouse gases to values that we have not seen on Earth in a million years or more. And yet uh, we won't know the response of the climate system at its fullest for decades. And, and by then you have this issue of what do you do about it? Uh, and, and I think that's really is, it's that inertia and the time constants of decades that together make this a really, really challenging, uh, challenging issue. I was thinking about this with respect to my neighbor. She's in the process of buying a condominium up in Mammoth. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, you know, in a hundred years, the projections are there won't be any snow at Mammoth. And, uh, uh at least the, uh, some of the models suggest this and, these are timescales that are, you know, it's long. You're talking about you buy a house that's an investment for your grandchildren. Well, maybe not, but maybe your children. And so I wonder what you would, what you would say to, to someone who's, you know, what, what confidence do we have in this, in these projections? Um, well, I'm not a demographer. I don't give real estate advice either, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I do give real estate advice, but it's not, not very good. I don't have a good track record. Um, but I think, you know, the interesting thing is, is the time constant also of human psychology, um, which I think comes into play, too. People, I think the, if the average time horizon of, peop, of most people is probably days to months. Some people are really good planners, and they've got their financial planning done for the next five years, and they've also, they're also socking away money for retirement. But that's actually not most people. I think most people are, are not really very focused on on very far in the future. And I guess, you know, we've evolved to be that way. I think um, probably the problems that we faced as we evolved were short-term problems, and we have a short-term, we we're, we're good at solving those kind of problems. This is a problem that is, is ill-posed for the human mind, I think. Um, and that's another, another, another interesting facet of this, of this problem. I think you touched on that in your, your remarks also. Well, I do have real estate advice, which is buy a vineyard in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> buy the port area in Canada for the shipping route That's to right. Asia. That's, That's right. Yeah. There's that port on the Hudson Bay, which some, somebody has bought up a lot of land there. People have already bought yes. up that land, yeah. It's too late, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess one of the other things I've been thinking about is, that, you know, this year we, of course, had June gloom, and it was... Uh, really persistent. I, I felt like it seemed much more so than, than normal even in Pasadena where the, usually the afternoon at least it burns off and you, this year it just seemed to go on and on. And I know that this is the, this is really the, out, the, the stratus clouds coming on shore, the, the, low, the low clouds from the ocean. And do we know anything in terms of the large scale about, about those clouds and are, are we going to start having warmer Junes or is it going to be cooler Julys? How does this, uh, how does this play out? <laughs> yeah, so Paul, Paul, I think, is sitting at the probably the central uncertainty in climate modeling. If, you know, climate models have, have a fairly large spread of warming that they predict for a given change in carbon dioxide concentrations and so forth. And most of that spread is due to uncertainties in clouds, and in particular these low clouds you're all familiar with, the marine layer coming over, over the coast. It's, it's cool under there until it burns off and it's warmer. And we don't understand very well what these clouds will do as the climate warms, whether we'll have more of them or less of them. So in some climate models, you get more of them. Uh, they won't warm as much because these clouds will give you a cooling effect. Some other models will have less of them. They'll have, give you a much bigger temperature increase because you don't have this moderating effect of these low clouds. And I think the short answer is we don't really know that. You addressed very appropriately the, the uncertainties in global distributions of low clouds. Um, but this, this June gloom phenomenon results from this, you know, this little curve that develops in the atmospheric circulation during June. The, um, you know, the, the, um, as, the, 
as the air is moving from the north to the south along the coast of California, it, it tends to curve in at that time of year and push these clouds inward. Well, from the perspective of the global atmospheric circulation, that's like a little pimple, you know, in the global. That's like, how is that little thing going to change as the climate changes? Um, that's a question that is tough, tough to get, our, get our, our arms around. So it's another example of how, you know, these, there are these cascading uncertainties. This global uncertainty is, is a big one, and it completely prevents us from following through and understanding what happens locally. So that's a question that really is, I think, very, very open. And, and of course, that phenomenon is, is, has a big effect on our climate. We're, it's like Seattle in June here. You know, yeah. so, it, it's so I guess uh, it, it seems to me, too, that that's, this is really part of the problem, isn't it? That the, the climate is noisy, that there's, there's a significant amount of variability. So when you ask people about their experience or, or individuals' experience with with something that is really a global phenomenon, it can be really uh, a challenge. Uh, you know, it's been a cold year, cold winter in, in New England this year, and everyone says, oh, there goes global warming, you know? And, and yet, you know, there are these large, this large variability that's, as you mentioned, there's little pimples, right, on the, on the global climate system, but that really inf tend to inform people incorrectly about the, the larger scale. And, and I wonder, um, Usha, you know, we, we have this problem, right, which is that, that, that people's individual's um, interaction with the climate system is more with weather and less with climate. They, they know the, you know, oh, this was a really wet year uh, or this was a really dry year and so on. But this, this very slow-moving um, temperature change is, is uh, almost imperceptible within the noise. Right. I once... Uh, I just for fun, I tracked what, the number of front page headlines in the New York Times and Washington Post on climate change, and it, it coincides with heat waves in Washington, D.C. And when, you know, when it's really hot in Washington in August, all of a sudden there's all these stories about climate change. And then yeah, when it cools down. So it's very short term, but I also think, you know, people... You know, people think Hurricane Katrina was caused by global warming, and you also, you, you know, Station Fire. You can't, you can't say that. Maybe we're headed to, you know, more dryness or more trees killed by beetles that are fundamentally caused by a warmer climate. But you, you just can't sort of put one incident to, you know, to blame it on climate change. You know, much as you might, you know, want to, or it might make sense. There's a lot of debate about hurricanes, isn't that right? Yeah. yeah. Regarding DC, actually, if, if, if you would want to locate the capital of the U.S. somewhere where climate change will be very perceptible so that there will be policy measures, <laughs> DC is actually almost perfect spot because uh, it is very warm in summer and it's very humid and will get warmer and more humid. <laughs> <laughs> and it's already not very pleasant and it doesn't take much for it to be even less pleasant than it is. And right, I think that might be... So some of the sea level rise? Yeah, so I think... It, <laughs> LA, I think 20 years from now, it'll still, probably still be attractive, but DC, <laughs> not for me. <laughs> but yeah, hurricanes, Usha asked about hurricanes. I think it's a good example, both from a science and a communication side, after Katrina, Rita, right after, one, after another, there was a lot of scientific debate, a lot of public deba debate whether hurricane frequency, intensity will increase with global warming. and uh, I think it is not actually just Washington Post and New York Times headlines that correlate with those events, also nature and science papers. Um, they're correlating with yeah. landfalling hurricane frequency at, at this point in any case. There was a lot of scientific debate. Um, and I think the conclusion right now is that hurricanes will get more intense as the climate warms. Um, but it's a rather subtle effect, most likely. And it is very hard to make inferences from globally more intense hurricanes to saying what they will do to the coastlines when they make landfall. So it's very few hurricanes make landfall in the first place. Whether these will be the more, more or less intense ones, it's difficult to say. And um, the damage caused by hurricanes, of course, doesn't only depend on the hurricane, but also what is built on the coast. And that is changing as well. And that's probably, as far as the damage by hurricanes is concerned. That's right now how much people have built up the coastlines. That's probably the bigger factor than any climate changes and hurricane intensity. But you know, it's, it seems like people um, need an emblem or a symbol or an event. You know, you mentioned the polar bears, and um, you know, I, I had kind of a 
frivolous conversation with a, a reality television producer one time about the issue of climate change and how you could communicate this to people. And, and you know, the storyline, he said, well, you need a story. You need, to, you need a story to make it real. You know, and, and all the stories we have are just these graphs, and it's probably better that we don't have our graphs in front of us and everything like that because it's so, you know, it's so dry. And, um, and at the, you know, he wanted to, said, well, you should, maybe there's a story about some girl in Alaska who misses her prom because the permafrost buckles underneath <laughs> her house. And, 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 um, and, you know, and, 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 and it has to be some, something, something like that. That's, you know, so I think people are captivated by stories about other people and events. And so there's this, there's this question, how do you, um, that, that's just the reality, that's the way people are. And, and so how do, you, how do you talk about something that has this very low beat to it, um, that, that, that takes place over such a long period of time? And I don't know how to address that, I, I really don't. It's hard because it's incremental. We had, I did a series on pollution in the ocean for the LA Times with some colleagues, and it's the same thing. Okay, we all know the ocean's polluted, and how do you, like, who's going to read that? How do you tell the story? And so we had to look for specific examples, you know, albatross chicks eating lighters, you know, big lighters that are floating on the surface of the sea, and, you know, just so many jellyfish that, you know, there's no room for any other life, and very dramatic things. And I, I think that's coming, so the stories will be there to tell. But I, I think the other um, problem with both pollution and, and climate change is, it, you know, it's all of us. It's, you know, I drove here in my station wagon, you know, which gets 28 miles per gallon, so I use fuel, and, you know, there's a, probably a climate control system in this room, and, you know, we are gonna throw away this plastic bottle when we're done, and, you know, we're, it's all of us using resources, and, you know, how do you confront that? How do you deal with your own consumption? And even when we try to be careful and, and miserly as Americans, you know, we're just using so many more resources than, you know, people in the developing world, and. And even if you don't, if you want to be good, you know, I was thirsty under these hot lights and I had to drink that water and I, you know, feel bad, but, you know, if you try to be good and you, you can't, how, you know, how do you deal with that psychologically when you're part of the problem we all are? I think uh, that's a great place to stop and open up the questions uh, from, from those of you out there. Uh, my name is Harold Kalishman. Um, you have made uh, planning sound like an act of futility and yet there are agencies at every level of government who are paid to plan and who, in fact, do plan. Uh, are there any uh, credible plans being made for the various uh, scenarios that you've outlined tonight? Well, I, <laughs> I know in the, in the area of water resources, there is discussion about constructing constructing more dams um, and increasing the size of, of existing reservoirs um, so that we can mimic the behavior of the, of, the Sierra, of the Sierra snowpack that probably will be somewhat lost. Um, and, um, you know, there are estimates of how much that would cost and, um, you know, there are account, accountants involved and, I mean, there, there are, there are um, nitty-gritty planners involved in that, in that kind of activity. So I know in that area, that has that people have begun that kind of planning. There is planning on all levels, of course. I mean, it, from your big insurance companies, they're sure planning for climate change and effects on coastlines. The reinsurance companies, the insurance companies of the insurance companies, they were probably the first big industry who hired climate scientists in the 1990s already. Um, they're surely planning, and of course, there's planning on the government levels, on all levels as well. For example, on, start on the top level, international level, we have a United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, uh, just passed in 1992. It has the famous um, goal that we should take measures to prevent what they call dangerous interference with the climate system. Uh, it is a very clear and, well, it is a very strong statement. At the same time, it's quite vague and that no one quite knows what dangerous interference is. But the, the, the succession of international negotiations that followed that, Framework Convention on Climate Change in 1992, the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, and the upcoming Copenhagen um, negotiations coming up in December, these are the top-level negotiations that, of course, trigger planning on government levels further down. Um, there, there are energy policies in the U.S. as in any other country. The question is, are they effective enough? I think the planning, too, ramps up as the crisis 
uh, gets larger. So in Alaska, you know, they've had to move entire villages because I don't know if it ruined anyone's prom, but when the permafrost <laughs> buckled, and the, you know, they're trying to figure out some of these villages. You can only travel by snowmobile in the winter, and when there's no snow, you know, how will they get to where they need to go? And the government of Tuvalu is talking about moving their entire population to New Zealand. So I'm sure our planning will ramp up too as you know we get into these water issues. And I mean. It, from as, as uh, challenging as this is, the, the long time scales do help in terms of planning response. If you, um, maybe it makes us a little sedentary, but the fact that the climate is, has a lot of inertia means that the planning can have its natural inertia um, as well. So, but as Tapio and everyone mentions, there really is things going on right now. Um, in the Senate right now, there's the discussion of the cap and trade, um, which would, at least uh, within the United States, hope to incentivize low-carbon technologies. Um, you know, Cal given that California played this this leadership role in in promoting, and you know, there would not have been a catalytic converter for cars if, if it hadn't been for California. And yet, catalytic converters are now used worldwide. They're on every car that's manufactured in China. And so, one hopes that even though even though there's this this, this problem, right, which is that that we need everyone to decarbonize if we were to try to limit the CO2 emissions. There is a role for, for large-scale invention here. And if the state of California, um, which is playing a leadership role now in the states, if the, sta if the United States itself does the incentivizing to make um, low-carbon technologies more economically viable, uh, we could once again you know, really um, lead the, the, the development of new technologies for I don't think we're going to a place where people are not going to have high quality of life. I think it's very clear that that's set. You know, the quality of life that we have is what everyone else wants. We want one better, but that we're not asking for um, for people to to really alter their existence in that way. There, there really are inventions. There's a lot of technology we already have. Caltech, for example. Uh, Tapio and I are helping to design a new laboratory that's being put into renovating a, a building at Caltech, the Lynn Center. Um, it's the Robinson Building, for those of you who might know one on California here. It's going to be an absolute state-of-the-art laboratory for doing the kind of science that we do. It will use no more than a third of the energy that the traditional Caltech building uses. And that's simply just because you do things with some insight about the need to reduce the resource utilization. And we can do this globally. Buildings are a huge source of, of waste in this United States, and, and much can be done to, to, to improve their, their um, energy efficiency. In addition to our government planning, the one thing that's also clear that if you're smart and you find a way to produce energy without emitting carbon dioxide, you're going to be very rich. <laughs> so, that, that is going to happen at some point in the not-too-distant future. And so there are a lot of very bright people working on, on new technologies to produce energy, and uh, some of our best students are working on it, and I'm sure something will come of it. And I, I think it's also um, worth, worth reminding ourselves that there was tremendous technological investment and government support for the development of fossil fuel resources over the past century. This did not happen <laughs> um, just because, only because there were private entrepreneurs out there um, you know, getting, get, getting oil. Um, there is a huge academic establishment supporting the, the search for fossil fuels and the improvement of that, not to mention the national security apparatus that supports um, extraction of fossil fuels in countries where these resources are located. So we have the capability to do dramatic things when we decide to do that. And I, I firmly believe that, that um, a, a future based on a carbon-free generation of, of energy is, is very much within our grasp, and, um, and I, I don't think that we'll have to um, stop drinking bottled water at, at, under hot Klieg lights, um, <laughs> or, or really curtail, curtail our, our lifestyles that much. So, uh, My name is Ana Kazindar, and uh, on politics and people's attitudes towards uh, climate change in this country, I was wondering whether the polls that you cited were designed to show whether there is a, a relationship between uh, the attitude uh, on climate change with where people fall on the political spectrum, how religious they are, and also things like um, age and level of education. Thank you. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd encourage you, if you look on the Pew website, they've got a whole section. They do these climate change um, polls regularly now, and they are, they're divided by um, how you identify politically, gender, age, religion, and it does break down as you would think, you know, uh, older people, more Republican people are less likely to think climate change is occurring or that it's a problem, um, but it's, it's interesting to look at. Hi, I'm, I'm Michelle Zach. In terms of planning for water and all of the arguments that we've had in California, it seems that it kind of broke down that the Republicans wanted to build more dams and reservoirs and the Democrats wanted to do more underground storage. And I just wonder what the science is on that, which would work better in a, a world where the, we're warming up. Alex, you want to? Um, I, I don't know the answer to that question, I must say. Um, I, um, uh, yeah, I can't comment on that, uh, that issue. I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know the specific debate you're referring to, but the, uh, I mean, one thing is relatively clear. As it gets warmer, you evaporate more water. And if that water is, is on the surface, you evaporate more of it. If you have some aquifer you can fill up, that won't evaporate. So, uh, but of course, there are cost questions and other questions that I'm not an expert on. I'm sure it's a very, I'm sure it's a very complex issue. And I'm, I would be surprised that it divides so neatly into um, political philosophies. <laughs> I'd be surprised if that's, if in reality it's that simple, but. It, you know, the one of the interesting things about, about the water resource uh, for California in particular is that most of the water, of course, is used in agriculture. And uh, California's cash crops in particular, it's all uh, irrigated, uh, the Central Valley and so forth. And so um, the, the big impacts on uh, of, of the kinds of things that Alex is talking about are going to be on, on agriculture. The, the amount of water that the city of Pasadena, no, sorry, the city of Los Angeles is using this year is down 20% from last year. And that's simply because they decided they were gonna do that. Um, so I think, you know, we know that urban water use is quite elastic against price and against regulation, but, uh, the agricultural issue is a whole different story and one which um, there's, you know, if you plant a bunch of uh, pecan trees, uh, you've made an investment for a very long time in, in those trees and uh, you need a steady and reliable amount of water. And so it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very interesting political situation that plays out agriculture against cities and so on. Yeah. And it's that, that issue is also related to the legal framework for water because if you, it, if you have water underneath your land, you know, you, you're, it's considered that you own the water. <laughs> but of course, that's part of a, of a, of a distribution system underground. And, and um, whereas the, the water that's coming from these reservoirs is, is, a, is a common resource from a legal perspective. So we probably we need to be rethinking these issues from a legal perspective also. Um, so again, another example of how complex it is. Hi, my name is Sarah Harris, and actually speaking directly to that, the issue of um, agriculture is I'm wondering if um, some of the uncertainties have come up. I'm wondering if any of you have some insight into what some of the projections are and the models for um, the Central Valley and the sustainability of current water deliverables and how that might impact the sustainability of being able to feed the population of Southern California. Well, the well, I mean, obviously, if if there's, I think there's the potential for there being a real shortage of water resources for agricultural purposes. I think it's about 80% of the water uh, from the Sierras goes to irrigate the Central Valley. So it's a that's a very vulnerable um, economic system, uh, and um, and you know there are other impacts too. There are a lot of these. Um, Fruiting trees um, rely on, or blooming trees rely on, um, certain periods of, of cool temperatures to produce um, buds and 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 and, um, and fruit, um, and so that so these these uh, farmers are very climate sensitive in, in many different ways, um, and and then there's also um, disease and pests which are going to be changing. Um, with the changing climates, and that's going to affect our agriculture as well. So there are a number of dimensions um, that um, involve vulnerability in the agricultural sector in the Central Valley, 
in addition to water resources. At the same time, I would think the agricultural sector is quite adaptable as well. I mean, sure, it, business as usual probably is not going to be possible, but you can plant different crops. And in, in the more immediate future, the next few decades, um, population of Southern California is going to increase by about 30% by 2050. Um, the difference between precipitation and evaporation, which is what you care about, if, if you think about irrigating a whole bunch of water you have available at the ground, that's probably going to change by a few percent um, in the next few decades. In the longer run, that, that can be quite different. And particularly once a snowpack disappears, that would be a drastic change. And that will be much harder change to adapt to. But there will be changes necessary in agriculture on a, on a shorter time scale of the next 20, 30, 40 years already. And I, I would hope there'll be changes done with a lot of foresight so that, that they'll be good for a few more decades beyond that. Yeah, and getting to the kinds of issues that Usha was mentioning about how challenging it is to, to explain these things. And I, I was struck by, you know, if you go to Sacramento, of course, if you fly up there, you fly over all the rice fields. And at first thought, I was like, wow, what a crazy thing to be doing, to be growing rice in this, in this uh, water-stressed environment. But you know, if you talk to some of the tree farmers uh, in, the, in the Central Valley, um, you get a very different perspective. And that is that when, uh, if the, um, the water resource is not steady, in other words, you have some years where you get a uh, plentiful water resource and other years when you almost, you get very, very little, then by having things like rice crops, which are seasonal, you just don't plant them some years when you don't have the water, you, you provide a much more elastic system that can respond to the varying uh, delivery of water. What happened was a lot of the rice has gone away, of course, now, and people have planted trees. But see, once you plant trees, now you need water every year. And you, you demand a reliable uh, and steady uh, stream of water. And so I don't know if many of you have read those paper, the paper recently about uh, tree farmers now who are at the end of the... Um, at the end of the, of the water resource uh, pipeline because you know, there's the first, the first guys get so much and the second it keeps going until there's no more. So there's uh, been a lot of, of people having to cut down whole uh, orchards of trees that they have planted from which used to be rice crops. So it, there's some really interesting dynamics that play out in, in, uh, in, that are not intuitive. And cer certain crops require a, a much longer time horizon of investment than others. I mean, yeah. if you grow, it takes a long time to grow, an, you know, to grow an almond tree. It takes years to, for that for that crop to mature, um, to to be as productive as it can be. So, those types of uh, farmers are much more concerned about um, the survival of that that crop than a crop that you're planting from year to year. So, there's it's it is a, it's a not a uniform situation for everybody. Certainly. Hi, my name is Noah Bleich. Um, I used to work for the city's environmental affairs department and give a lot of talks on the environment to kids, adults, religious groups. Um, the one response I always get is, there'll be new technology to fix it. Don't worry about it, it's okay. Uh, and I think that's kind of the way we've grown up in our technological age, not even accounting for the fact that most climate change is because of our technology that caused it. Do you really think that there'll be some technology other than changing our lifestyles and the way we do things, that can really impact climate change. Yes, I really do. I think if the, if the incentives are there, and they're already there, as Tapio mentions, um, and they're growing to, to develop energy that is low carbon intensity, I think we're incredibly inventive and add into it the the economic incentives to, to produce something. Uh, and there is a big resource. Solar energy is an enormous resource. And it's, um, it's, uh, it's available, it's very, very cheap. And it's just a question of now figuring out how to inexpensively harness it. It, it can power the world without any problem uh, if the incentives are there to switch over from, from carbon. I think the estimates of available solar and wind resources are something like two orders of magnitude bigger than global consumption of energy. It's, it's a giant resource, and we already have the technology basically to harness it. It's just a matter of perfecting it to the point where 
we can very cheaply produce this stuff. And then, I mean, just thinking about building efficiency, like you said, I mean, you can make huge strides. And then there are these houses in Germany where they've developed these heat exchangers. Um, in, instead of a furnace, they have a heat exchanger so that, so that um, you have air being brought in from outside and, and air be, being mixed with the, mixed, um, or the heat of it being mixed with the house, in, in, um, with the house so that um, you're not, you basically don't have to heat the house at all. Um, and that's a, it's a actually a relatively cheap technology. But um, I, I, think, I think there'll be all kinds of, there already are, are all kinds of innovations, and I, I actually don't think that the, um, the, the steps that we, that we have to take are, are revolutions. I think they're evolutions in many different areas. So I, 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 I think it will happen. If the incentives are there. If the incentives yeah. are there. And I, I That's think, the big if. Yeah. And yeah. Maybe you could say, I feel even, would like to say it's something even stronger that without technology, you just can't change people's behavior on a global scale. I mean, there's, there's just, you would have to change behavior globally, not just in Pasadena or Santa Monica. Uh, it would have to be in China as well. And I don't think it can happen just by appealing to moral authorities or anything like that. But of course, there's a strong economic incentive, and there should be a stronger economic incentive, agree with Paul, to develop carbon neutral technologies. And um, at the same time, there are, of course, a lot of ancillary benefits. If you just find ways of producing energy now that doesn't lead to carbon dioxide emissions, typically also reduces other emissions. Uh, it makes the air cleaner. And there are lots of reasons to to reduce emissions of greenhouse gases that are not directly related to climate change. These nice houses that use a lot less energy, they're actually a lot more comfortable than a drafty house. You know, there's, it's not just technology also. I want, it's also the law. Um, there was an example of a, a building in Chicago um, that was to be resheathed. And um, it, it was, of course, much more expense, expensive to resheath it in, with an energy efficient material that would use a lot, um, would allow for less heating and cooling costs. Um, but the tenants pay the electricity bills, and the landlord is the one who resheats the building. And there was no economic structure or legal framework to allocate the costs and the benefits in an economic way. So guess what they did? They resheat the building in this cheap material that doesn't save energy, even though it would have saved money in the long run. So a, a lot of these things are just no-brainers, and we just have to rethink the way that we do our contracts. You know, also, you you know, that right now, you, if you produce more solar energy in your home or business or wind energy, you don't get paid for that when you sell it back to the grid. And that's just because the utilities have designed it that way, so they get your free energy. Well, what if we unleash, unleashed the power of the, the market to um, allow people to generate their own energy and sell it back to the grid and actually make money from their, from their homes? I mean, these are not scientific questions. These are policy questions. These are legal questions. And that's where we need agitation. We need change in that area. And, and again, this is another, another area where, where I think incremental changes are going to make a difference. Examples are all over. You've heard of phantom power. You know, things like if, if you have cable TV, your cable box is probably really hot. And it's, you know, you, you, most of us have it on all the time. And we, you know, Time Warner is not paying for the electricity for that. So they have no incentive to do a low energy cable box or one that shuts itself off. So we're paying the energy bills, but we don't have any control over the engineering of this box. And there are things like that all over our house, the flat screen TVs, you know, maybe your burglar alarm system, where just all this energy is being wasted. And it, it could be solved with, with tweaks. I in mean, it's, it's kind of surprising that organizations like the Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute, aren't <laughs> all over these solutions, because they really are just rationalizing the marketplace. And you would think that f believers in the market would be promoting these kinds of solutions. Why aren't they? Where are those voices? I don't really hear those voices right. in the debate that right. much. So. Thank you. Uh, my name is Patrick Griffith. And uh, just generally speaking, in terms of how we address climate change, you can look at the mitigation measures, which are emission reduction measures, or adaptation, you know, which is responding to the impacts of climate change. And I was watching some of the debate in the Environment Public Works Committee in the Senate uh, with the Kerry Boxer bill. And just kind of looking at uh, some of the summaries of that, it looks like for adaptation, they're only taking, they're starting with 0.5% of the allowances. Uh, they're starting with that, and then they're gonna top out at 2% of the allowances uh, for adaptation needs. And so I'm wondering, it seems like we gotta do both. 
So if you had to uh, distribute society's resources, mitigation, adaptation, you know, what, would you pick it 50-50 or 90% mitigation, 10% adaptation? Where would you draw the line? I don't, I, you know, I, I can't answer that directly because I don't know what the, num what the dollars are associated with those, those numbers that you mentioned. But I will say this. I think that there is a need for more resources to go into understanding the, the, the changes. Um, I think if you look at the total amount of money that has been allocated to that, it's really a drop in the bucket. I, um, back in 2007, someone quoted a number saying that the cost of doing a global climate simulation at one kilometer resolution was equivalent to an hour of the war in Iraq or something like that. I mean, this is back when that war was going strong. So I think the, the resources that have been allocated to understanding and, and, and also the interdisciplinary work that, that's needed to actually do adaptation involving social scientists and lawyers and those, those, those types of um, people, economists, that work, I think, requires resources and hasn't really been done very seriously yet on the whole, I would say. There's the other aspect, though, again, which is just this inertia problem, which is, you know, I, I, I firmly believe that we really, we want to try to get to the low carbon technologies as soon as possible. Because if particularly when you, when you look at the trajectory of, of development um, in the developing world, if we can provide some solutions that are no-brainers, right? Uh, there's there's a tremendous there is a tremendous incentive to try to get to get there sooner, and uh, so I'm not sure about the allocation. It, it's uh, you, I think you can make a case depending on how you look at it as to where to where to go. And part of the issue with the, with the allocation of these numbers is that adaptation and mitigation happen on different scales. Uh, the, the adaptation is always local. The mitigation requires at least national, probably international incentives that are right. And that probably is how these numbers are shaking out in the Senate bill, because it is probably the federal government that, that has to take care, care of the mitigation measures, putting economic incentives in place to develop new technologies, whereas it's public utilities and so forth that will have to adapt. And it's just a different pot of money where that will come from. Thank you so much.